My name is Dr. Dane Wilkich. I'm the Dr. Charles F. Gregory Chair of Orthopedic Surgery at the UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. You're listening to Interview with a Surgeon with the Surgeon Agent. On this episode of Interview with the Surgeon, we welcome Dr. Donnie Wukic, Chair of Orthopedic Surgery at UT Southwestern, and the Dr. Charles F. Gregory Chair of Orthopedic Surgery. He is also the Medical Director of Orthopedic Surgery at UT Southwestern University Hospitals. Dr. Wukic is a nationally renowned foot and ankle specialist, educator, lecturer, and researcher. He has written more than 100 papers and given invited lectures around the globe. He serves as peer reviewer for 11 journals and is the author or co-author of several book chapters dealing with foot and ankle problems in athletes and patients with diabetes. His research interests include the complications of circular external fixation in patients with diabetes, foot and ankle problems in post-transplant patients, and treatment of spastic deformities of the foot and ankle in patients with traumatic brain injury and or stroke. Dr. Wukic is board certified by the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery and is a member of numerous professional organizations, including the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society, the American Orthopedic Association, and the American Diabetes Association. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Interview with the Surgeon. Today, we have Dr. Donna Wukic, Chair of Orthopedic Surgery at UT Southwestern. Doc, how are we doing today? Doing great. Thanks for being with us. So let's just jump right into it. What were your goals and aspirations during your residency, and how did those change during your fellowship? It's a great question. I think when, when you're a resident, your goal is to receive the best training you can and I don't think you're thinking so much about the job market, but rather becoming the best surgeon. In my own case, it was kind of unique because I started out my career uh, wanting to be a heart surgeon. I did an internship and uh, really loved heart surgery. And to this day, I still do. But during my internship, I really questioned whether I was sure that I wanted to do that. And so I took a couple years off. I was in the Army and went to Germany for a couple years and worked in an orthopedic clinic and then eventually decided to come back and do orthopedic surgery. So I think one thing that I would like to get out there is it's okay to change your mind. A lot of people think that they make a decision when they're 26 years of age that is lifelong. It's not a sign of failure to change your mind and go to a different path. I did it and actually worked out really well for me. So thinking about that during your fellowship, you know, what was your mentality heading into the first job search process and how that perspective changed in the beginning years of your career? Again, I would say that I'm unique in the sense that I went to medical school on, a, on an Army scholarship at Georgetown, and then I trained at Walter Reed. And after my residency, I went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, working with the 82nd Airborne and spent my time there. While I was there, the first Gulf War broke out from the Persian Gulf, and I was over there and came back, and my time was up. So it's interesting. My first job search was really done during a time of uh, quite significant conflict. I was in a war. My family was back at home and we decided to move close to my wife's sister so that we could have family um, really be close to each other. At the time, this was back in 1990 and 1991, I didn't really think a fellowship was the way to go and I decided to go into private practice. And the reason I chose not to do a fellowship is when you've been away from war and you have young children and you haven't seen your family, you really want to get back into the swing of things. So we decided to go and, and be near family in Eastern Pennsylvania. I always had a, a tremendous desire for academic medicine, and I practiced for 12 years in general orthopedic surgery. And at that point, uh, when I was 46 years of age, I decided to go back and do a fellowship, which is kind of crazy. But uh, I gave up everything in private practice, 
the successful life, the nice house, the country club, and went back and did my fellowship at Cleveland Clinic. And looking back on it, it was such an incredible experience because I didn't need to learn how to become a surgeon. I went back there just with the expectation to learn. And it was a wonderful experience. Financially, it was a big hit for our family. And at that point, uh, I decided to go into academic medicine at 47 years of age. And so I started my academic career quite late in life. So what I'm illustrating is there are many ways to get to where I am. It's not a straight line. You can do it different ways. And then after my fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, I was hired by Dr. Freddie Fu at the University of Pittsburgh and went and spent uh, 12 years there and rose from assistant professor, associate professor to full professor, and then was recruited to Dallas. So I think the bottom line, if I could share with everybody is, never be afraid to take a chance and don't look back. Just go and do what you wanna do, what your heart uh, wants you to do. And I think that there were times it was tough on the family to give up private practice. At the time that I went back and did my fellowship, I made less money than my daughter's college tuition at the University of Pennsylvania. But my family hung in there with me. Can you kind of take us through the conversations that you had with your wife during that time when you decided to leave the private practice world to go academic? Yeah, I think she thought I was crazy. And I think that my, my son thought I was having a midlife crisis. And he said, Dad, some guys go out and buy a really nice car or they do this and you want to give up everything and go back. And then my wife, uh, she said to me, if this is really what you want to do, okay, I'm behind it. And, and she did. And, you know, uh, I'm pleased to say that, uh, you know, in, in about two weeks, we'll celebrate our 42nd wedding anniversary. So she's, we got married before I started medical school. She was actually an undergraduate in college. And we went through college, medical school, internship. And during my internship, I said to her, you know what, I'm not sure I want to be a cardiac surgeon. So she said, okay. We went to Germany for a couple of years and came back. And then Fort Bragg, she's been probably the most flexible person I know. It hasn't been easy. And I know it wasn't easy for my kids. But I think now my relationship with my adult children and their ages 36 and 31 is tremendously good because I think that they respect me. My daughter, who uh, is, I think, an overachiever like me, um, she's an Ivy League graduate. She has an MBA. She's a lawyer. And she said to me, you know, Dad, the older I get, I, I'm, I'm starting to get frightened. And I said, why? And she said, because I realize that the older I get, I'm more like you. And I said, well, what's so bad about that? And she said, I didn't like you very much when I was younger. And uh, so I think it's, it's, it's a matter of going through it and having your family support you. So it's been great. And I think my relationship with them now is great. And I look back and uh, although they were hard decisions, I think one of the things that I find in, in people that is really hard is change. I think being afraid to take a chance. And I think it's okay. You don't have to be reckless, but it's always, it's like, you know, you're an athletic agent. You know, the best players are always living on the edge. They're wanting to go and be better. And so they, they're not reckless, but they want to go out and try a, a new play or you know, a new way of getting to point A to point B. So I think all of us as professionals to reach our peak, we have to get out of our comfort zone. So what would you say were some of the keys to your success that shaped your early career as you climbed to the top of the industry? I think there, without question, I think my military background and training under the guys that trained me in the Army at Walter Reed, uh, many of them were West Point graduates who had then been Vietnam vets. And I think um, they taught me the value of responsibility, of integrity, and hard work. And I was very lucky, but I also came from parents that were like that. My dad was, uh, you know, his dad died when he was a young man and you know, he was a worker in a factory worker, he was an incredible guy. 
but he taught me from a very early time of my life to be responsible, to be honest, and not to make excuses. My mother taught me how to treat people. She was the compassionate one. And I think I was so lucky and I was able to tell them, my dad died when he was 93 and my mother is 93 now, but I told them when I could that they were the best teachers I ever had, but I didn't know that they were my teachers until I was 50. And they didn't know that I was their student, but people don't realize you, you learn character values from your family by the age of 10. You can't teach character to somebody who's an adult. But when I became a resident and worked for all of these tremendous guys who had been West Point graduates, Vietnam veterans who became doctors, it, they, were, they held me accountable. And you know, I, we used to joke about it, but we only needed three responses to be successful. Yes, sir. No, sir. No excuse, sir. And, and I also was, you know, I was an athlete growing up, played small college basketball. And I think being an athlete and knowing that, you know, you don't always win. But I also know that as an athlete, personally, I played some of my best games against people that were better than me that we lost. And I always rose to a level of competition. And so I've tried it even in my professional life to think like that. And I think that every athlete I know plays their best when they're playing against somebody who's better than they are. You know, you just rise to that. Like you rise to the mean. You either rise to the mean or you lower yourself to the mean. So the key is to stay against people that are better than you. I think, I think Michael Dell said it. I may be wrong, but he said that the key to success is to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are and willing to challenge you. So I, I like that's that's my that's how I like to practice. So what advice do you have for the graduating residents and fellows as they enter their professional job search process for the first time? Number one, be open-minded. Uh, when you go into a job search, be willing to do whatever that practice needs you to do. I think one of the things that some people are very pigeonholed, but if you go into a practice and you're going to be the junior person, be you a male or female, be willing to do what other partners in that practice don't necessarily want to do. Uh, be willing to take more call. Right now, everybody's into quality of life, and we kind of joke about it in my generation. You know, we don't know what that means, you know, because I was on, I was on call 18 months in a row without a night off when I started. Uh, that's probably unheard of nowadays, but the point is you have to be available. You have to be willing to do what other people don't want to do, and you have to be there for your partners. Help your partners out, and I think the last thing you should be thinking about in a conversation is the compensation. Compensation takes care of itself, you know, with time. If you're in a job that you're doing a great job and you're helping your partners, they're going to reward you. And I think the other thing I would tell you that much of the compensation that we receive as surgeons is non-taxable. It's from our patients. I mean, the gratitude of doing the right thing for a patient and helping them, you, you can't put a dollar figure on that. So now one of the big conversations that comes up uh, with graduating residents and fellows is really the whole annual conference things being virtual. And so what type of advice do you have for them? You know, usually they'd be able to see you at a conference, rub shoulders with you, talk with you, and now they really can't. And I think that outreach process is something that needs to be explored and discussed. I think there are, the silver lining to it is you can talk to a lot more people now, virtual. You know, I was, I'm 64 years of age and, you know, I was not a big person of, you know, with virtual meetings and conferences in the last four months, it's become my life. And actually, I, I've realized that I kind of like virtual conferences in some ways. I still think you need to be with people and meet people, but you can be so much more effective doing a virtual meeting. I mean, you're in California, I'm in Texas here, it's a Saturday morning. But I think you, the key thing is to introduce yourself and you do that 
electronically, whether it's through email or social media, and then you follow it up with an in-person thing. And I think that at some point you have to have that physical face-to-face -face contact because it's one thing to have a virtual meeting, but it's another thing to actually see a person. And uh, so I think, I think there's a silver lining and I hope that going forward, a lot more of our meetings are gonna be this way. Tomorrow I'm gonna to be giving a webinar in India in the morning, I've given three already. That's a phenomenal opportunity. I love visiting India. It's physically taxing for me and it takes time from work, but to be able to give a lecture there is phenomenal. So I think there are many silver linings that have come about this, but the key thing is personal contact. I will say that uh, my mother-in-law uh, taught me something that I would pass on to young people. Uh, she worked at Rockwell International for one of the astronauts who was a Gemini and Apollo astronaut. And she taught me to write personal notes, handwritten. And so when I interview with anybody, when I see somebody, it's one thing to send an email, but it's another thing to send a three or four line note thanking them for that. And you know, when somebody receives that like me, it's like, oh my goodness, somebody sent me a personal handwritten note. That's a lost art. And you know, social media is great, but boy, you can follow it up with something else, but sending a nice little note to them, handwritten, thanking them for their time and meeting with you, goes a long way. People remember that. That distinguishes you. So what is the turnover rate that you've been seeing in practices and how are the senior partners valuing the younger generation? That's a great question. I think that traditionally in orthopedics, I think it's about 50% of people change jobs within one or two years. When I was young, that was considered a sign of failure. Oh my God, what did I do wrong? It's really not you. It's the practice. It's not the right practice. So I think that young surgeons should recognize that if it's not the right job, it's okay to make a move. I think a senior partner who is not valuing you enough to mentor you and produce and bring you into that partnership track doesn't understand it. You don't want to be their partner. I think that the key thing is they have to recognize that they want, you know, they should be thinking about their exit strategy. The problem is I think a lot of senior partners, and again, I'm, I'm generalizing, but there are some that want to make money off of young people. And I think they want to keep, keep going and, and have you kind of be a, an indentured servant. And you don't want to practice like that. You want it to be very well defined that at X time, I'm going to be a partner. Uh, you want to talk about what are, what are the buy-ins going to be? What is, what is it going to cost me? Does that include the furniture in the office? Does that include the, the real estate? Does that include the surgery center? You need to have those discussions before you sign your contract. Don't let them tell you, hey, we'll talk about that at the time. That's the worst advice. If you choose to go in and you realize private practice is becoming less common, so people are now becoming employed physicians. You know, employed physicians are, are not bad, bad decisions. They're good decisions, but you do give up some autonomy. When you go into academics, you're going to have different responsibilities. Um, and I think that you just have to find out what's right for you and make it work. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Interview with the Surgeon. Until next time, stay focused and keep following your dreams.